It's good to be back here. Uh, good afternoon. You getting used to saying good afternoon when you come to church? I hope so. Here we are. Summit Bible Church at Foothill in the afternoon, and we dive back into God's Word together. I'm so glad to see more of you this Sunday. What a privilege it is to preach God's Word as always. Well, I remember uh, the first time that someone asked me this question, do you love her? Of course, this person was my pastor, Chris Mueller. And the lady he was asking me about was my then-girlfriend, Brianna Tanawi, who's now my wife, Brianna Maitland. I remember it clearly. Chris Mueller asked me over to his house for a walk and talk. Now, that is where I knew that uh, there was a big issue uh, at play here because Chris Mueller, my pastor, did not walk and talk. It was more like uh, drive and talk. He was a busy man. His schedule was full of meetings and ministry events. He would ask me to come along, drive in the car with him, and then that's where we would chat. But this time, he asked me to his house to walk around the neighborhood and talk. So I knew the issue was serious. And when, as we started walking, it was kind of, you know, just typical ministry conversation. And then we turned the corner around the block, and that's when the conversation turned with it. And Chris asked me, he said, hey, how are things going with you and Bree? And I said, things are going well. You know, we're having a lot of fun together. We're getting to know each other. Things are going really well. And Chris said, okay, well, you know, tell me some of the things that you like about her. And by this time, we had been dating for quite a while. And he said, just tell me a few things that you like about her. I said, well, you know, I, I love her heart for the Lord. I, I love that she loves to serve in the church. I, I love that she's hospitable. I, I love her personality. She's fun and energetic, and he cut me off. He said, well, Morgan, he said, I asked you what you like about her, and you said what you love about her. Caught red-handed. And then he followed up with the big question. He said, do you love her? Kind of with a smile. And that was the first time I had been asked, and I already knew the answer in my heart, but there was something about being asked that question and having to respond out loud. I told him, I said, I, I do. And then in typical Chris Mueller fashion, he gave me the, you know, the pastoral three to five steps to marriage, and the rest, of the, the rest of the story is history, of course. We ended up getting married. But I remember that day, I remember being asked that big question and, and having to respond out loud. Uh, proclaiming, professing my true love for my now spice, now spice, my now spouse, spicy spouse. Uh, Summit Bible Church, I ask you this afternoon, do you love him? Of course, the person I'm talking about is our Lord, our God. Do you love your God? I, okay, so similar to how I had to respond to the big question out loud, and I had to say, I do, I would like you to respond out loud. Do you love the Lord your God? Good, okay. Well, I pray, and I, I hope, my prayer is that your profession uh, would match your heart, and that you would truly 
love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 as we dive back into the text. Do you love the Lord your God? This is the quintessential question. If someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm really struggling with assurance of salvation. I'm struggling with doubt. I don't know if I'm a true Christian. My first response, my first question is always, do you love him? That's the question Jesus asked Peter. Do you remember in John chapter 21? Peter was no doubt in doubt. He was questioning his faith. He was questioning his relationship with the Lord. He had denied him three times. He felt like a failure. And what does Jesus ask him three times? Peter, do you love me? So I want you to ask yourself this week, every day, today, do I truly love the Lord? And how can I grow to love him more? You're in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40, and this is where we're going to camp for the next two weeks, this week and next. I just want to remind you that we're skipping along through the book of Matthew for this short series. And this is not typical, but this is just an Essentials of Our Faith series. We're going through the five G's. Do you remember them? We have the Gospel, the Great Commandments, the Great Commission, all to the glory of God for our good. Five G's. And what we're doing is we're simply laying the king's foundation, reaffirming these basic building blocks, and we find them all in the book of Matthew. And we're going to go through this series before we move to a systematic exposition uh, of a book of the Bible. You know how we, we preach the Bible like it was written from start to finish. Uh, not Genesis, Revelation, literally, but books individually start to finish. And that's how we'll continue, you know, passage by passage, verse by verse. And just to give you a little spoiler alert, uh, we are going to move into the book of Ephesians after this short series that we do these six weeks. So be looking forward to that. But here we are back in the book of Matthew. Last week, we looked at the king's message, which is the gospel. That's the first G. And this week we look at the king's commands, the second G, the great commandments. There are two great commandments presented in this passage, Matthew 22, 34 to 40. This week we will deal with the first, and next week we will deal with the second. But let's read through the text. I'm reading, by the way, out of the ESV version. I know some of you uh, you, you know that I came... Uh, having only preached out of the NASB version, that was the version of my previous church, and many asked me, you know, Morgan, what are you going to do? Summit Bible Church preaches out of the ESV, and uh, are, are you going to change Bibles? Or are you going to change versions? And here, here's how I thought through this question. I thought, which is easier? I get a new Bible, or I ask all of you to get a new Bible? Yeah, I'll just get a new Bible pretty simple. I'm okay with it. ESV, NASB, two great English translations, and so I am happy to now be preaching out of the ESV version. So read along with me in your English Standard Version Bible, Matthew 22, verse 34. It says this, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, 
asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, let's get familiar with the context of this passage. Jesus is in the middle of an interrogation uh, with the rabbis, the religious elite. It's more like a three-round Bible boxing match. They're trying to knock Jesus out with difficult questions. They don't know that they're going toe-to-toe with the king. So the first question was political. The Herodians asked whether or not they should pay Roman tax. Of course, this question is uh, intended that Jesus would get in trouble with the Romans. That he would say something to the effect of no, or that doesn't matter, and then he would be arrested for not paying Roman tax. But Jesus responds perfectly to this question. Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they, the Herodians, heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Ding, ding, ding. Round one goes to Jesus. Round two. The second question was theological. Now the Sadducees try to set him up. They set him up with this impossible, speculative, resurrection question. Which, by the way, they don't believe in the resurrection. And so they're setting up just this ridiculous question to try to trick him. It's a complicated subject. Try to get Jesus to be mixed up in his words. But Jesus cuts it straight. Answers them perfectly in verses 29 through 32. And verse 33 tells us, When the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Verse 34, we saw right there, he silenced the Sadducees. That word for silenced literally means he gagged them. You ever been gagged in an argument? You, you just want to say something so bad. You, you think, man, I've got to come back at this person. And then you just, you're gagged because you have nothing to say in response. These Sadducees were gagged. They, they're, like, they're trying to get something out, but they can't. They were silenced by the Lord. Ding, ding, ding. The king takes round two. And so now we come to round three. And the third question we see here is a Bible question. It's a law question, more specifically. Jesus is 2-0. and you got to ask, why are they throwing Bible questions at the author? They don't know that. He's unbeatable. And so the Pharisees bring out the big guns. Who did they bring out? Look at verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer. Uh Uh-oh. This can't be good. The lawyer steps up to the plate. Now, it's interesting. Matthew uses a word here, lawyer, that he doesn't use elsewhere in the Bible, um, uh, elsewhere in his gospel, sorry. And uh, the scribes in general were lawyers, experts in the law. But this man was identified as the lawyer. This is the expert of the experts. This is their top dog. And so this lawyer 
of, of course, is an expert in the law. It's not Roman law. This is Jewish law, Mosaic law, the Torah. He is a Bible expert. And his desire, the text tells us, is to put Jesus to the test. He asked him a question to test him. And so here we get to the big question this afternoon. What does he ask him? The big question. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? You know, you've got to ask the question, why does he ask that? It seems like a simple, a simple question. It seems pretty straightforward. Jesus is a Jew. He grew up in a Jewish household. Of course, he has familiarity with the Jewish laws. Wouldn't he know? Wouldn't he have a good shot at, at telling us who, which the greatest law is? It seems kind of like, you know, the rabbis are putting the ball on the tee for Jesus to hit out of the park. But it's not as straightforward as you think. See, this question was a setup. First of all, the rabbis had determined there were three, sorry, 613 separate laws in the Pentateuch. Why did they pick the number 613? Well, 613 was their number because there were exactly 613 separate Hebrew letters in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. A bit speculative, don't you think? And so they decided, well, there must be 613 laws. And so if they didn't find them actually in the Pentateuch, they'd make them up and add to the book. And these laws were split into categories. You had the affirmative and the negative laws. You have the heavy and the light laws. Of course, the heavy laws were absolutely binding. The light laws were not as binding. And the rabbis loved to have discourses and debates debating which laws were more important, which laws are heavy, which laws are light. So there's enough speculation and debate around the law for Jesus to maybe trip up. Maybe they get Jesus to provide a, a weak argument to defend his view of the law. But I don't think that's what this lawyer is really getting at. I don't think he's looking for Jesus to mess up or to reorganize the law, I think he's testing Jesus to see if he will usurp the law. To see if he would claim a higher authority over it. A higher authority than their beloved lawgiver, Moses himself. See, the religious elite, they love Moses. Moses was their lawgiver. They quote Moses. The Sadducees just did it. In verse 24, they said, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They quoted him again in, uh, earlier in the book of Matthew. Jesus is teaching against divorce. And they respond and they said, Well, why then did Moses... Command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. They love Moses. Moses is their king, their prophet, the highest authority because he's the one who gave them the law. Jesus says in the next chapter, Matthew 23, verse 2, that the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
and they love it. They love to be in the seat of Moses, delegating and uh, making sure everybody follows the rules. They love Moses, they love his law, and it seems, at least to the rabbis, that Jesus doesn't. It seems to the rabbis that Jesus' teaching contradicts Moses. Well, Jesus broke the Sabbath multiple times. His disciples didn't follow the ceremonial washings. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he quoted the law and seemed to expound upon its authority. He said this, you've heard it said, but I say... So I believe the lawyer's question is a setup. Will Jesus continue to usurp the law? Will Jesus continue what it seems like to add to the law? Will he continue to commandeer the authority of their beloved Moses? Here is his great test. And Jesus' response really does hit it out of the park. Let's look at his answer, the king's answer. The king's answer is his commands. And this is, of course, part one. There are two parts to the great commandments. Verse 37, and Jesus, he said to him, no hesitation, Jesus responds to the question immediately. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Wow, what a response. Jesus doesn't commandeer Moses, he quotes him directly. This is, of course, the great Shema. Are you familiar with it? The great Shema, a passage of scripture every Jew knows well. In fact, they recite it multiple times a day. Why don't you turn your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's look at its origins, the great Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is in your Old Testament, flip left quite a ways. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and the great Shema, verses 4 and 5. Here it is, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel. By the way, Shema, the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That's why, by the way, the Jews recite it multiple times a day. They were commanded to. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. I don't know if you've seen pictures of Orthodox Jews, or maybe seen an Orthodox Jew, and they have a headband on, it looks like a headband, and they have a little box right on their forehead. In that little box is a little piece of parchment paper. And on that parchment paper is the great Shema. They're applying literally, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house 
and on your gates. I don't know if you've been to an Orthodox Jewish home or have seen it. They have the mezuzah on their doorposts. It's a little canister or a little case that holds a scroll. Written on that scroll is the great Shema. They're applying literally, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is a familiar passage. As Jesus recites it, no doubt the rabbis were caught and they probably felt like fools. He quotes the great Shema. Jesus says, this is the preeminent commandment. This is the great, he says, and first. God is first. God is first. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind. The Jews were without excuse. They knew the great Shema backwards and forwards. The irony, of course, is in the lives of these religious elite, while they had the passage memorized, recited, and posted, it was was not a reality in their hearts. What does Jesus say? Deuteronomy 6, 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. See, the Jews, the rabbis, professed a love for God, but did not truly love Him from the heart. Jesus calls him out. He says, you hypocrites, Matthew 15. Isaiah prophesied of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is this you? Religious on the outside, proclaiming a love for God, yet your heart is far from Him. You would say, maybe at the beginning of the sermon, I do, I do love the Lord. I do love God. But if you're honest with your heart, you know it's not true. Do you truly love the Lord your God with your entire being? Let's look at the command here. Let's look at this command. You shall love. The word love there, the root word for the verb, you shall love, is agapeo. Or agapao, sorry. It's agape. It's the highest form of love. It's a God-given love. It's a love that derives from the will and results in action. It's not an emotional, touchy-feely love that comes and goes. This is sacrificial love. Love, ultimate commitment, surrender. Jesus defines it. He sets the bar here. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's the highest form of love, agape love. And this is the kind of love that's required of you. Whole life surrender to the Lord your God. Who is the first object of this kind of love? The first object. Let's keep reading. You shall love who? The Lord your God. He's first. God is first in our lives. Whole life love for God. That's big. That's big. Agape love for God? That's a a high demand, isn't it? Oh, don't worry. It gets bigger. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
The emphasis here is on the word all. It's the word holos in the Greek. Does it sound familiar? That's where we get our English word whole. Whole. It's used three times here in the text. I know, you know, maybe back in Awanas when you're trying to recite this verse fast, you maybe skip the alls. You skipped all the three alls. You say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Right? You try to say it fast. That's, that's not the emphasis here in the text. It's you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Every aspect of your being ought to love God this way. It's whole life love from the whole person. Again, I ask you, do you love the Lord your God like this? Is every aspect of your life surrendered in love to God? Not just a profession of love on the outside, but a true love that comes from the heart, the soul, and the mind, the inner man. Do you love Him from the inside out? This is the mark of a true believer. A true love for God. Every believer can say from their heart and with their lips, yes, I love the Lord my God like this. Not perfectly, not perfectly, but truly, truly, genuinely. Maybe you're convicted because you know, I don't love God like this. I don't have a whole life love for God from the whole person. Listen, you have to hear me. It is impossible to have a love like this unless you have been loved like this. It's impossible to conjure up some kind of love in your own heart for God. The heart of man naturally hates God. It's opposed to God in in your sin. It's impossible to have a love like this unless you have been loved by this. 1 John 4, 7-8 Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So how does one come to love like this? Being born of God and knowing God. This is only a love that a believer can have. Someone who's been truly transformed from the inside out by God's love. God loves us first. God loves us first. 1 John 4, 19, we love because He first loved us. 1 John 4, 10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The gospel is the greatest display of love like this. Jesus Christ gave his whole life, his whole person in love for the sake of your salvation. In order to truly love God the way you were designed and called to do, you need to respond to Christ's love in the gospel. You need to truly be transformed by the love of Christ, the immense the immeasurable, the whole life, whole person, sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Have you been born again? Have you been transformed by repenting from your sin, believing wholly in the sacrifice and work of Jesus Christ?
Do you love the Lord? Have you been transformed by his love? Those of us who have can say amen. Yes, we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our mind. Not perfectly, but truly. Because God has so loved us. He so loved us. But sometimes, maybe you'll admit with me, if we're honest, we can forget God's love. And we need to be stirred up in our love for him, don't we? We need that stirring regularly. We need the the poker to come in and stir up the coals of our hearts to love God more. And we can always grow in our love for God. So I want to end with some practical application. How do we grow in our love for God? As Christians, how can we grow in our love for God? I would like you to write these down. Growing in whole life, whole person love for God. First of all, grow in pursuit of God. How do you grow in your love for God? Well, grow in pursuing Him. Talking about relationship here. Your faith is not simply a religion of duty and exercise. It is a relationship that needs to be cultivated and pursued. Seek the Lord relationally. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jeremiah 29.13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Proverbs 8.17, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Revelation 3.20, we sang this. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Seek the Lord and grow in your love for him. Seek out regular time of devotion. Commune with God in scripture reading and prayer. Listen, you can't grow in love with someone that you don't pursue. You can't grow in love with someone that you don't pursue. If I told you that I love my wife, I adore her, she means everything to me, and then you found out that I don't talk to her. In fact, I get home from work and I ignore her. I don't spend any time even thinking about her. I'm too busy talking about everyone else. There's a hundred other people in my life that I devote way more time to. She's like a ghost to me in the house. Would you question my love for her? Well, you should. Because there's no pursuit of her. I'm not seeking her out in relationship. Love pursues. Love seeks out. Love spends time with. Love communes with. You want to grow in your love for God? Then spend time with Him. Talk with Him. Commune with Him. Pursue Him. Seek Him. Too often, men and women profess a love for God and don't spend any time pursuing Him. That's not a relationship. That's not love. It's an empty religion. Grow in your pursuing your pursuit of God. Number two, grow in knowledge of God. You want to love God more? Grow in your knowledge of Him. Philippians 1.9, Paul says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. 2 Peter 
grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I love this passage, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Seek a greater depth in your knowledge of God, and you will grow in your love for him. Now, there's a theory in science called the enhancement effect. Have you heard of it? The theory is, and it's been proven, uh, that basically the longer one stares at a colored object, or let's say a painting, the longer one stares at it, the more enhanced the colors become, the greater the contrast in the colors. So Harvard applied these principles to an actual study, and the theory was proven true. Listen what they found. They found out that the longer a person stares at another person's face, the more attracted they are to them. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that give you some hope, spouses? The longer that a person stares at another person's face, the more attracted they become to them. Interesting theory. Christian, the longer you stare into the face of God as he is revealed in his word, the more interesting, the more beautiful, the more lovely he becomes to you. I can say it with absolute truthfulness that the most thrilling, the most exhilarating times in my life, the the time that really just lights my life on fire is when I'm in my study, behind my Bible, learning about God. To see Him. When I come face to face with him as he reveals himself in the word, there is nothing more exciting, nothing more thrilling, no roller coaster tall enough, fast enough, no life experience great enough to compare with my relationship with God, knowing him. Oh, to know him. I pray the same for you, that you would grow in your love for God by growing in your knowledge of him. The last thing, the third application, if you want to grow in your love for God, thirdly, grow in your obedience to him. Grow in your obedience to him. It's no secret in the scriptures that obedience is a true expression of love. Obedience is a true expression of love. John 14, 15, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. 14.21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14.23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 1 John 2.4-6, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But 
Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Obedience is a true expression of love. That's a great principle to teach your children, by the way. Obedience is a true expression of love. Obedience, not just on the outside, but that flows from a heart of love. That's important. If you truly love mom and dad, you will obey them. Not just physically, but an obedience that comes from a willing heart. The same principle applies to our Christian walk. If you truly love God with all your heart, in all your soul, in all your mind, then you will obey him. You will keep his word. Now, some say, I just don't feel close to God right now. I don't really feel motivated to love him. Are you obeying him? Well, let me ask you this way. What command of scripture are you struggling to obey? Not perfectly. We know that. We're not perfect. But generally and increasingly, we will grow in our obedience to God. It's called sanctification. We'll grow in our holiness, becoming holy like the one who called us. And sometimes we're going to struggle in our flesh, and sometimes we'll fail. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He talks about the things he wants to do, but doesn't do. The things he doesn't want to do, but does. But he says this, I delight in the law of my God in my inner being. That's the key. There's a want to. There's a desire to obey God in the heart of every true believer. Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members waging war. Well, that's the battle of the Christian life. But in the heart of every true believer, there is a true love for God and a desire to obey him. Do you have that desire? You want to grow in your love for God? Obey him. Keep his word. Evaluate your life. Where are you maybe lacking or not obeying or submitting to God in his word? Even when it's hard, obey him and you'll grow in your love for him. And we know ultimately that when we love God, it's for his glory, but it's also for our good. You know the verse, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. When your heart is wholly surrendered to God, the whole person, whole life, love for God, ultimately it works out for your good. doesn't mean the circumstances of life are going to be easy, everything's just going to flow, it's all going to be flowers and butterflies. No, but our ultimate good is wrapped up in our love for God and ultimately one day being with Him forever. So I ask you again, do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind? Love him first. Love him first. Next week we'll see this. Love for God is also expressed in your love for others. And your love for others. And that's where we'll go Next week, there's more to Jesus's response for the lawyer, a second command that is like the first. So next week, part two, loving others, loving your neighbor as yourself. Let me pray.
Father, we love you because you first loved us. We acknowledge, God, that true love comes from you. You showed us love when you sent your son, who was a willing sacrifice on the cross for our sins. You showed us what true love is, agape love, sacrificial love, by laying your life down for those you would call friends. In response to so great a love, God, we want to love you with our whole life, our whole person. We want to surrender ourselves to you, O oh God, and grow in our love for you. Those of us who truly are born-again Christians, who have been born of God and know God, we can say with our whole heart that we do love you, God, not perfectly, but genuinely. And we want to grow in our love for you. Help us to grow in our love for you, Lord, by being devoted to you, pursuing you, obeying your commands, Lord. Help us, God, to love you more and then also to love others in the way that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.